Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, last week uh, we saw that uh, we saw that first that the Spirit came on a limited number of people in the Old Testament. We're, we're just comparing the Old Testament because the Spirit was working in the Old Testament. And he was also working in the New Testament um, after Pentecost or. And um, so the Spirit came only on prophets and priests and kings, craftsmen, and, and so on. Any that had been designated to fulfill a particular task for the kingdom that God had for them. And uh, under the new covenant, the Spirit was given to all believers. Second, the Spirit remained for a limited time in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant. The Spirit would come on people for as long as it took to complete the kingdom task that they had been given. But in the New Covenant, which was inaugurated by the cross and Pentecost over that 40-day period, the Holy Spirit is given to not only all believers, but he's given permanently to them. He never leaves. Uh, we, we can have a greater or lesser measure of him, but he's always there. Third, spirit, the Spirit had limited purposes in the Old Testament or under the Old Covenants. Spirit came on those specific people to give them the supernatural wisdom, uh, empowerment, and the words that they needed for a certain task, but under the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit was also given so that believers could obey God and that they could receive all the benefits that come with, a, with the Holy Spirit. We'll, we'll see a few of those benefits uh, this week, but next week, as we finish up the series, we're going to talk a little bit more about all that we receive when we receive the Holy Spirit. Today, we'll look more closely at this matter of the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism in the Spirit, and by the way, uh, just, a, just a little side note here. Some of you no doubt are thinking, wow, you pack in a lot of stuff in each one of these uh, messages. We can hardly keep up. That's why you have a pause button. See? And uh, if you're of a good Berean Christian, as the book of Acts said, they studied carefully what the apostles said. They didn't just listen. They went home and they studied the Old Testament scriptures to see if what they were saying lined up. And so that's, uh, that's how you should view this. So if we're packing in a lot, um, uh, that, that's, uh, that's to help you. And uh, not just to give you something for today, but something that's going to help you in the longer term. All right, the baptism in the Spirit happens, first of all, to all believers at salvation. Just before Jesus ascended, he instructed the disciples to return to Jerusalem and wait there to be baptized in the Spirit. It says, John baptized with water. That was Jesus speaking just before he ascended. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And with that, Jesus was taken before their eyes uh, to ask the Father if he could then send the promised blessed Holy Spirit as he had promised in John chapter 14. And the apostles, uh, and, and then he told, he told them to go to Jerusalem and wait. The apostles uh, returned to Jerusalem, and there they waited for the Holy Spirit. 120 believers, it says, gathered to pray for the Spirit to come. 
And then it happened. The paraclete came in power. And we touched on it from another angle last week. And let, but let me reread this portion again. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, from this event, listen carefully now, some see the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an experience of the Holy Spirit that believers receive subsequent or after salvation. And I want to challenge that notion. And the re but the reasoning goes like this. It's based on the fact that the disciples had the Holy Spirit before Pentecost, like in the Gospels, when Jesus was on earth. And that's true, isn't it? Yet, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So, it looks like they have two experiences of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but here's why that rationale is problematic. And we, this isn't about just uh, trying to get our, you know, uh, like arguing over uh, jots and tittles. That's, that's not what this is about. But words matter, thoughts matter, ideas matter. And if you have, if, if we don't understand what scripture is saying, we're going to get, we're going to go off onto a tangent or a track that the Holy Spirit never intended us to go on. And so we have to be, we have to be careful as we unpack these kinds of things, all right? First, here's why the uh, rationale is pro uh, problematic. First, the disciples lived during a transition period in redemption history. The Holy Spirit came on certain Old Testament people to accomplish their role, as we said. The people in the Gospels lived before the New Covenant was inaugurated. Remember what we said about that over the last couple of weeks. So the Apostles, for example, even though they're in the four Gospels, that's before the New Covenant is being inaugurated. Uh, so the Apostles, for example, had the Holy Spirit on them, as we saw. But that shouldn't trouble us. Uh, that was, uh, uh, that's exactly the way it was in the Old Testament. But this wasn't the Holy Spirit outpouring that would permanently indwell all believers, giving them access to all the benefits of the Holy Spirit. If, if they had already had that, then Jesus wouldn't have told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit. So they had the Spirit, but they had him in an Old Covenant sense just for certain tasks that they were being asked to do. They didn't have all the benefits that we're going to be mentioning of the Holy Spirit and the ability to obey, as we talked about last week. So all believers needed the Holy Spirit baptism, including the disciples. Second, the baptism in the Holy Spirit came to the Jews at salvation. Peter declared that Jesus rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, and that he had asked the Father if he could pour out the Spirit on his people as promised. And as predicted by the prophets, as we looked at over the last few weeks. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and asked Peter and the apostles, what then shall we do? And the 
and Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for two things. For the forgiveness of sins. And that's where a lot of, that's where a lot of evangelicals stop. But he said, for two things. You get two things when you repent and are saved. You get forgiveness of sins, and you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Peter and Luke, I mean, Peter was preaching this, but Luke recorded it, and he agreed with Peter. So Peter and Luke would have us conclude that when the 3,000 believed, they received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the 3,000 Jewish uh, people that were saved that day, the baptism of the Spirit was their first experience of the Holy Spirit, unlike the disciples, see that? And it occurred simultaneous to salvation, not subsequent or after salvation. All right? Number three. Baptism in the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles at salvation too. Peter objected. Remember, he was uh, praying in Joppa the one day at noon, and he had this vision of a sheet coming down with these uh, unclean, ceremonially unclean animals, and the voice that said, Peter, get up and eat these. And he said, no, I would never eat them. Anyway, uh, then the Spirit, and he didn't understand the meaning of it, and then the Spirit said to him, there's a couple of guys, uh, men at the door, and they're knocking. I want you to go with them. So Peter went with them, and, and uh, they escorted him to Cornelius, a Gentile centurion who lived in Caesarea. And he had invited his relatives, his friends, his colleagues. The house was packed, and Peter felt uncomfortable going into the Gentile home, and he preached the gospel, and, and the Holy Spirit came down on them as he preached. Let's read it. Acts 10, 44 to 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished. In other words, the Jews that came with Peter accompanied him. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles or the non-Jews. Just like the 3,000 new Jewish believers... Uh, the Gentile believers received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at salvation, simultaneous to it, uh, not subsequent to it. Here's the fourth one. Let's look at the Samaritan issue. So remember, Jesus said, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. So Jerusalem, Judea, the Jews, Samaritans, that's the mixed blood. They were mixed blood, Jew and Gentile, and the Gentiles. And now he's with the, we've already talked about the Jews and the Gentiles, now we're talking about the Samaritans. And the, uh, the Samaritan baptism in the Holy Spirit needed verification uh, by the apostles. Because some say, hey, wait a minute. When the Samaritans got saved, there was persecution that broke out. And... Um, and Philip and all the believers were scattered out because they were supposed to go out. Not just stay in Jerusalem. They were supposed to go to Judea and Samaria. And they did because of the persecution. And Philip ended up ministering in a city in Samaria. 
and uh, he, uh, uh, where he preached Christ. And, he, and this is in chapter 8. He performed powerful signs and wonders and he healed and he exercised demons and uh, so on. Just as Jesus had taught them uh, to do when they were spreading the gospel. And many, it says, were saved in verses 12 to 14. And when the apostles in Jerusalem, because they remained behind, heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. Here's, uh, let's pick it up there. In verse 15, when they arrived, the apostles, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized, he's talking about water baptism here, into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So some have then said, concluded and said, "Uh, see, that means that the baptism of the Spirit comes after the fact, subsequent to salvation. But already we've made it, uh, we've shown very, very clearly that the Jews and the Gentiles, two out of three of the groups, received it simultaneous to salvation and Peter actually preached it as a doctrine. And... um, Uh, So why the contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles on the one hand and the Samaritans on the other hand? Well, for centuries, there had been a bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Samaritans were mixed blood, Jew and Gentile. That was because the northern kingdom had gone into exile and all of that. And uh, so they were mixed with the Assyrians. So the Jews looked down contemptuously at that mixed blood group. So that Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, as John said in chapter 4, verse 9. God waited to give the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans through the apostles because they weren't there. See, there was an apostle present for the Jews and for the Gentiles. But there was no apostle present. The highest form of leadership in the New Testament church was the apostolic leadership. No one was present when these Samaritans became believers because it was a deacon, Philip, who ministered to them, not an apostle. And so uh, God wanted the highest form of leadership in the Jerusalem church to get it, that the Spirit had also come on them. And uh, so that's what happened. Uh, apostolic verification was important. That's why Peter was present there. He was uh, for the Gentiles. He was present for the, for the Jews when it came on. And when a dispute later on arose about whether Gentile believers had to adopt Jewish customs or practices like circumcision in chapter 15 of Acts, uh, whether they needed that to be saved, it was resolved by a council, a conclave. In fact, it was the first church council in history. And now people sometimes, uh, uh, they point to the, the big church council at Nicaea in 325 AD and say, that's the first one. No, the first one, the precedent was set in Acts 15, where they settled this issue uh, once, once and for all. And uh, so verification by the highest leadership in the New Testament church was very, very important uh, for, for that. And that's why, even though they got saved, then the apostles had to come, they laid their hands, they saw what happened, and that, that's how we explain it. Therefore, in conclusion, all believers have been baptized in the Spirit at salvation. 
So never ask another believer if they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They have. All right, let's go to the second point. Does the Holy Spirit then also baptize? Is, is, there, a, is there then a different one? So is, is, do we get one at salvation and do we get another one subsequent to that? And uh, some have realized that what I, what I just went through, they agree with that. And then they say, but we still think there should be a second baptism. And they see it as being one by the Holy Spirit. So they're saying Jesus baptizes one time, that's at salvation, and then subsequent to salvation, you get a second one, but this one is done by the Holy Spirit. And they base their claim on something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And when you read some English translations, it seems that they may be right. Uh, let's read it. 1 Corinthians, we'll read it in the NIV. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Now that sounds like the spirit is doing the baptizing, doesn't it? Be ready for the pause button now. But six New Testament passages say that Jesus would baptize people with or in the Holy Spirit. For example, Luke chapter 3 verse 16. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And there's six passages. You can look them up. The Greek grammar for both of these passages that you see on the screen are the same. They're the same. Uh, yet the NIV, I use the same translation there, it, uh, translates them inconsistently. In Luke, it says that it trans the NIV translates it so that it looks like Jesus is doing the baptizing, and that's correct. We, as we saw. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, the way they translated by changing, the, uh, changing it to a different preposition with, uh, or by, I should say, it looks like the Holy Spirit is doing the baptizing. But all seven verses, the six in the Gospels, and the one by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, which have the same kind of cons uh, construction, other than some are in future and some in present uh, tense, uh, they should all be translated exactly the same. They either rise together or they fall together. You can't be inconsistent and translate one this way and, one, and the others this way. Does that make sense? And if that didn't make sense, hit the pause button and then replay. And... Um, so why have three translations muddied the waters? Perhaps the translators thought it was a little awkward to say in one spirit into one body. It, um, would you please go back on the PowerPoint? Go back to the first uh, Corinthians. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Look at that verse again. First Corinthians 12, 13, they're showing it on the screen. For we were all baptized. See, if they had translated it in the way they should have to be consistent with what Luke did or with, either one would be fine. It would say, for we are all baptized in or with one spirit into one body. They didn't like the in or in into. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a little awkward. It says, we're all baptized in one spirit into one body. That, it's a little awkward. So they flipped it to buy for that uh, one particular verse there. 
perhaps that's why. Yet when translating a similar grammatical construction, all English Bibles were content to go with the awkward translation. And I'll show you an example. So here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Do you see what I'm saying? That's awkward. Why didn't they go here, what they did with the baptism one, why didn't they do the same thing? It's because it's still the NIV. They were all baptized, then it would have been, they were all baptized by Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, they didn't want to say that. They didn't want to say that Moses baptized them in the sea, so they left it. They left it like that. But if you can do it like that in 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 2, then why wouldn't you be able to do that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? Well, the ESV did do it correctly. And they translated it this way. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Sounds a little awkward, but it, it's, that's correct. Add to this fact that no Old Testament prophecy, no teaching of John the Baptist, no teaching of Jesus mentioned two baptisms, none. In fact, Paul says there is only one, and you know the passage, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5 says, one Lord, one faith, one what? Baptism. Exactly. So then, there is only one baptism when Jesus baptizes believers with or in the Holy Spirit at salvation. The Holy Spirit doesn't baptize anyone. All right? Now, let's go to the third part. What then about those who report subsequent experiences of the Holy Spirit? Are they misguided? Are they wrong about, the, about these experiences? Absolutely not. They have had subsequent experiences. Uh, fantastic ones often. I can't, in fact, I can't conceive of not having additional experiences of the Holy Spirit, as you're going to see. I've had multiple experiences with the Holy Spirit. I, I, uh, you know, on, uh, on a scale ranging from mild to strong in nature, and so have many or most of you. So if that isn't the baptism of the Spirit, what should we call it? Well, we learned that it's salvation. We are all baptized with the Holy Spirit. But the result of that baptism is that we are full of the Holy Spirit. Now, follow me. Jesus had told the disciples to go to Jerusalem, where they should be baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.5 says that. In a few days, you'll be, what? Baptized with the Holy Spirit. Yet, when they get to the story of Pentecost, it doesn't say they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? It says in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, all of them were, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? The word baptize is, a, is an interesting one because it's not actually a translation. It's a transliteration of the word baptizo. Uh, now, a translation, we all know what that means. But what's a transliteration? It's where you take, a, where you take the letters of a word in one language and you exchange them for the uh, corresponding letters of another language. 
So, baptizo becomes baptized. Do you see it? It doesn't tell you what the meaning of it is. And uh, so instead of a translation, they gave us a transliteration. So what then is the translation of the Greek word baptizo? And the word is submerge or immerse. That's where we get this whole idea of immersion for water baptism. Submerge or immerse is a translation of the word baptizo. So then Jesus said they would be submerged in the Holy Spirit. That's baptism. And when they were, uh, they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let let me give you an example. Uh, Let me illustrate that for you. You can take a sponge and you can submerge it. Call it baptism if you like. (laughs) You can baptize your sponge at home. And you can submerge it in a pail of water so that it is then filled with water. Do you see it? So you submerge it in a pail of water and then it is filled with water. That's, what, that's what's going on here. However, once you are baptized or submerged in the Holy Spirit and filled by the Holy Spirit, you come out dripping wet and empowered by the Holy Spirit, You can and need to be repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit just like you have to continually take that sponge and put it back in the pail of water. And Peter was. We have an example of it. He was filled at Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 because they were all filled with the Holy Spirit there when they were baptized. Uh, He was filled after his arrest when speaking before the council in chapter 4 verse 8. They arrested him, remember? And then he was... Uh, and then he stood before the council and after they arrested him and had to give account for, uh, for speaking in the name of Jesus because the council, the Sanhedrin, was very, very angry about it. And the Spirit filled him for, those, uh, for the boldness, it says. If you go to verse 13, I believe it is, verse 13, he was, uh, they saw the boldness that he had. And they were filled And uh, he was filled again when he reported it to the church and they prayed. So right after that event, so it says he was speaking to the Sanhedrin and he was filled with boldness and they noticed it. They talked about it. They said, we can't believe how bold he is. Then they released them after threatening him. And uh, Peter and John went back to the church and reported all the things that had happened. And after that, it says they lifted their voices in prayer to God and, uh, and they, one of the things they prayed for was boldness. And the whole, it says the Holy Spirit filled them and they were bold. The whole church was. So Peter was part of that. He was filled again. So we know of at least three instances. In fact, though we are nowhere commanded to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? That's the promise we receive. But we're not commanded to be baptized were commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5.18 says that. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be what? Filled in or with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's in the imperative, meaning it's a command. It means it's our responsibility to be filled. It's in the passive, meaning we allow, we're talking about the grammar here, okay, the passive voice, meaning we allow Jesus 
to fill us with the Spirit. We can't fill ourselves with the Spirit. Jesus does that. But we have to yield to him and allow that to happen. It's in the passive. But we're responsible that it actually happens. And third, it's in the present tense, which means we are to be continually being filled. In other words, it would be correct to translate it as be being filled. Just continually being filled. It's, a, it's not supposed to be a one-time thing, a two-time thing, a three-time thing. Uh, it's a continual thing. Why do we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit? Why doesn't God simply fill your tank up with the Holy Spirit and then uh, close the tank and leave you alone? Why doesn't he do it that way? Because, I believe it's because God only gives his special gifts to those who are humble in heart. In Matthew 5, 3, it says, Blessed are the, what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of uh, heaven. If we're proud know-it-alls who think we can do it without him, and uh, he'll oblige. Listen, there's many Christians who are proud and think they can do it without the Holy Spirit. He's, the Holy Spirit's just some kind of a, they, they think he's kind of just working in the background. And they're not intentionally yielded to him, seeking to be filled with him. They can do it on their own. They really believe that. That God has just kind of wound us up like a deist almost. He's wound us up like, uh, you know, these little energizer bunnies. And then he just leaves us alone. That's not how it works because we're not energizing energizer bunnies we're human beings and as human beings we get to choose whether we want to uh, interact with him whether we want to relate to him whether we want to partner with him whether we want to yield to him whether we want to depend on him and those who are poor in spirit know that they know that they can't accomplish anything that will last eternally for the kingdom and for Christ apart from being empowered and enabled and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they seek it. God designed it that way. He designed it that way. And, uh, and uh, so they know how much they need them. They know they need to be filled. Well, let's look at the effects of the filling of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fills a person, it has effects. When the 120 were submerged or baptized and then, you know, <laughs> dunked in the pail and then filled with the Holy Spirit, the crowd of thousands who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost heard the 120 speaking in their own languages. It says, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. They were there for the Feast of Pentecost, as you know. And at this, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language, in his own language. And then it lists the languages, 15 of them. Can you believe it? That's incredible. That was what they were able to do because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They couldn't do it before, uh, but they could do it then. And it doesn't mean that they were going to be able to continue doing that. 
But at that point, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit filled them for a specific task and purpose that he had at the founding of the church. At Pentecost, with all these nations gathered there. Some people will tell you that, the, that evidence that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit is that you can speak in tongues or languages. Um, but first of all, these were human tongues or languages, not heavenly tongues or language. And by the way, the heavenly ones are legitimate. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. And in chapter 13, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, he, he, he talks about the difference between uh, the tongues of men, human languages, and of angels, mother tongue, you know, that sort of thing, languages. Um, second, it is true that one evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit can be the ability to speak a heavenly tongue or language. No question about it. And I believe in the, in the gift of tongues, the heavenly, heavenly gift of tongues, the spiritual language. And um, many in this church um, use that gift. My wife uses it every single day for much of the praying she does for me. But it isn't the only evidence as seen by what happened at Pentecost. In fact, the effects of the filling of the Holy Spirit are almost limitless with what he can give you. He fills you for this, and then he fills you for this, and he fills you for this, and he fills you for this, and he fills you for this. He can use it for anything. And um, only using the words filled, full, or fill, this is what I found when I did a search. Boldness, you know, like when the disciples were arrested. Joy, all of these that I'm listing now, it, said, it connects it with the fullness or filling or being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every one of these. Hope, peace, wisdom, like the deacons. Find men filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Faith, like Stephen and Barnabas. God's love, prophesying, withstanding temptation, like Jesus. Uh, signs and wonders, visions, effective preaching, guidance, witnessing, ability, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship. Even in the Old Testament, they were doing that. Leadership. It's just that in the Old Testament, it was much more limited. But there was some of that. Uh, leadership. The 70 elders there in Numbers 11. Ministering to one another, Ephesians 5.18. Singing and making melody to the Lord. Thankfulness to the Lord. Submission to one another. And if we use phrases such as, by the Spirit, we get even more. Things like casting out demons, Jesus said. I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Uh, they were taught by the Spirit, and so on and so forth. You get the idea. The ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit is what produces fruit. You know, at salvation, remember we said, at salvation, people are baptized in, in, the, in the Spirit. They're submerged in the pale of the Holy Spirit, in the realm of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but in the realm of spirit, and they come out. And that's why new believers will often, you will notice a real uh, uh, difference in them. And they'll report um, mild to strong experiences at salvation, great joy or a desire to pray, boldness and witness, hunger for the word. 
Sometimes when older seasoned Christians see new believers respond this way, they respond condescendingly, they'll grow out of it. How sad that is. Do, do, you know what, do you know what the older believer is betraying? Not that they're more mature, but that they're no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. Because as soon as they're filled with the Spirit, they'll have those same things again that they had before. But you can lose it. See, that's my point. We are responsible to continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. These are results or effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit at salvation or subsequent to salvation. No wonder we need to be continually filled. Amen? I mean, when you look at that list, and that's just a very brief list that I, that I just passed through, you realize, wow, to be, to be baptized in the Spirit and submerged in the realm of the Spirit and then he fills you up, it just opens up to the doors of limitless opportunity for the Spirit to work through you for eternal purposes that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. It's incredible. No wonder we need to be continually filled. Uh, the analogy I'd like to use here is the analogy of sailing. The sails of a sailboat need to be constantly filled with air from blowing wind in order to move. You can't just give it one gust of wind and say, well, that, there you had it. You were, you know, you were baptized, your sails were baptized with a gust of wind and they were filled. Well, that's, that, that, that's great. That's a good start, but you need this constant wind blowing. You can't fill the sails on Sunday in your spiritual life and then sail around all week and then fill them again next Sunday. In order to keep moving, you need to constantly keep the sails filled. If you don't, you'll stop in the water. You'll be dead in the water. Or you'll drift, worse, with the current. Or you'll drift with the current. I see a lot of Christians drifting with the currents of the devil and the world. The wind of the Holy Spirit is always blowing, but it is up to you and me to adjust our sails and turn the tiller into the wind so that we can, that we can harness the wind of the Spirit. So how do we do that? That's the last section. First of all, repent for grieving and quenching or resisting the Spirit. Let's talk about grieving the Spirit for a moment. In Ephesians, Paul said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit and breaks fellowship with him just as an offense or sin against a brother or sister uh, breaks fellowship and distances them from us. The same thing, because he's a person. Remember we talked about that several messages ago. First John 1 says, if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in dar darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. In other words, if you say you're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit but you're sinning, he, said, he calls that a lie. He said because it's impossible. <laughs> because when we of offend him, we are distanced from him. Here's the second one. Not just grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit we have to repent for. 
in First Thessalonians, Paul said uh, to the church there, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test them all, hold on to what is good. The context tells here what quenching the Holy Spirit means. Prophecies are communications from God by his spirit. Now, what does it mean to treat a prophecy with contempt? It means that either through conscious disregard or neglect, we set aside God's messages to us through his spirit in favor of our own human wisdom and our own human ideas and our own plans. That's what it means. We, we, we don't think that his communications to us, his guidance, listening to him in prayer is that important. We treat them contemptuously. And he says, when we do, we are quenching him. How so? Because he's not allowed to work through us then. So it quenches his ability to work through us. God has choice words for this. Through Isaiah, he said, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. Quenching the Holy Spirit may seem tame compared to grieving the Spirit, but it's not. It's not. God calls it contemptuous. The source and outcome of it are exactly the same. It's pride. Pride is the devilish root of both grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit. And the distancing of the Spirit with his accompanying filling and blessings is the outcome. So when we grieve him, we distance him. And when we quench him, we stop him and in that sense uh, break fellowship with him and distance him. And in both cases, we end up with the same result. We can't be filled with him. Uh, we can't be filled with the wind and the blowing of the Holy Spirit. And if we're embarrassed by him, as some believers are, as some pastors are, church leaders are sometimes embarrassed. They don't want it. They're afraid of, you know, what he might do because they think they know better. If we are embarrassed by him or don't think we really need him, you know, he, we, we think he's just a doctrine we hold to, he'll take the hint and he'll refrain from working supernaturally in our lives. No more filling. Do you see that? And then finally is resisting the spirit there. You stiff-necked people, this was uh, Stephen speaking to, to the religious leaders just before they martyred him, just before they stoned him to death. And look what he says to them. But he, it says that he did it by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit filled him for the speech that he gave. An incredible speech. You might want to read it. Chapter 6 and 7. You stiff-necked people, he's saying to, the, to these religious uh, leaders, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And he said, just like your forefathers did in the wilderness when they tested him those ten times. This was uh, what Stephen said. And then um, he, he wrote his death sentence by saying that. At this point, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit has usually moved on from convicting us internally 
to bringing correction and warning through others, which is exactly what he was doing. To resist the spirit, usually at that point, we've gone past the grieving and the quenching. We're at the point where we're just completely resisting him and we're not even taking correction or warning from other believers that God sends into our lives. And he says, you gotta repent from that. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you can't live like that. You can go to all the Holy Spirit conferences you like. And you can raise your hands all you like in worship. And you can cry out and cut yourself, jump up and down on an altar and, uh, calling for the Holy Spirit, and nothing happens. So long as there's sin that hasn't been dealt with. That's why it's important. Here's the second one. We have to obey the Holy Spirit. God instructed Saul to destroy the Amalekites. I remember that story? He said, I want you to destroy the Amalekites and all their herds, their flocks, the whole thing. And then it, um, because of some of, the, some of the wicked things that they had done. And remember, God did the same thing with Israel when she, did, uh, when she uh, carried out some of the uh, wicked things they did. But anyway, in this case, Saul spared the king and the best of the herds and flocks. God said, get rid of them all. And he kept it. And he kept the king and he kept the best of the herds and flocks. He reasoned saying that he was saving them to sacrifice to the Lord. Aww. Aww. How nice. Saul. I mean, right? But what did the Lord think about it? Does the Lord, uh, Samuel, uh, God spoke through Samuel to Saul. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. The best sacrifice that you and I can bring the Lord is obedience. That's what he's saying. He said, oh, worship him. Oh, la, la. You know what's the best worship you can give him? Obedience. The other is important. But he doesn't listen to it and he doesn't receive our sacrifices if we don't obey. And um, Samuel then said, you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as a result, the spirit left Saul. It says in chapter 16, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That often happens. The Spirit of the Lord leaves and other spirits come into that house. That's what happens. And it happens, and, and, and Christians get demonized. That's another, whole, that's another whole series, amen. Really? I mean, Saul obeyed 90%. But 90% obedience is no obedience in God's eyes. Jesus said something interesting which relates to this. He said, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, when we obey, we remain in him. That's what he's saying. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, I said that in a few messages before. We, we get the Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they reside in us. And when we obey, we remain in them. And where the, the fullness, uh, and that's where the fullness is with all the benefits. 
The fullness of the Spirit with all his benefits are found when we remain in him. And we remain in him and we obey. Wow. So if we wish to be filled with the Spirit, we must return to obedience. Pray for the filling. Remember, I said, the responsibility lies with us to be filled with the Spirit. But Jesus does the, bapti- uh, does the filling of the Spirit. Not we. We can't do that. We're responsible to meet the conditions so that he can fill us for whatever tasks he asks, asks of us and the things that he requires for us to do. And the things he wants to do for us, like be our comforter. Third, pray for the filling of the Spirit. So not only are we to repent of grieving, quenching, and resistant spirit, not only are we to obey the Holy Spirit to be filled, pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 11, it says, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to what? To those who ask him. To those who ask him. It was no coincidence that as Jesus was praying at his baptism, that the Spirit came on him. You know, one day I was, I was meditating on that passage years ago, and the Holy Spirit arrested me with a question. Does he ever do that to you when you're, when you're reading Scripture or meditating on it? And all? It's, it's like a question comes up. And the question was, what was he praying for? I said, well, I don't know. It doesn't say. <laughs> I, was, I was having this conversation. It, it, Lord, I don't know. It doesn't say what he was praying for. The Holy Spirit said, read it again. I read it again, and all at once I saw what he was getting at. He was praying to be baptized with the Spirit because Isaiah said he would be, and he needed it. And so the Spirit, of course, he came down. We can pray for the Spirit as well, for a filling of the Spirit. Um, Just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he instructed the disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. And notice how the 120 interpreted waiting, waiting for the gift my Father promised. How did they interpret that? How did they understand that? It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. And then the Spirit came. Pray daily for the filling of his Holy Spirit. I pray for it every single day, as far as I know. I'm I'm not saying I never miss. But as far as I know, I, I pray daily for the filling of the Holy Spirit because I am so desperate to have it. I can't do the things he calls me to do without him. And neither can you. And neither can you. You, you want to raise kids that are going to make a difference for eternity? Uh, that are going to come into eternity with you? Whatever it is that he's calling you to do, you need the Holy Spirit to, fig- uh, to navigate that. Nobody can do it without him. No course can tell you how you should do it. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Number four, live by the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't have time now to go into to talk about that one, so I'll just put it up on the screen. It's the fourth one. You can study it on your own. And number five, laying on of hands. We do that kind of thing, for example, at the Empower Ministers Retreat. 
We lay hands on, uh, both for gifts, but also for the filling of the Spirit, you know, during that resting time. And you can do that in First, uh, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, and Second Timothy 1, verse 6. Here's what I'd like to say in, in conclusion. You know, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, um, I, I wish I would have put the passage up. It just comes to my mind now. It says that Jesus had the Spirit in full measure. That's because he was always meeting the conditions. He was living by the Spirit, as we saw the other week. Um, he was sinless. There was nothing that distanced him. And so he was able to have the full measure of the Spirit. We leak because of some of these, these problems in our life. But aren't you glad that God gives us a way that we can get back on our feet? We can, we can deal with our junk. He tells us we can be, we can be filled. We can confess our sins. And... Um, and then we, our fellowship is restored, then we can obey, then we remain in him, we can turn back from the way we were going and go the other way, and then we can have a greater measure of the Spirit working in our lives. And what he accomplishes through us by the filling of the Holy Spirit is what's going to last for time and eternity. To the extent that you and I yield to him, that we confess our sin, we, we stay clean with him, we grow in our character, to that, to that extent we get a greater measure of him working through us. We're filled up. Our sponge isn't crusty. You know when you take a really dried out crusty sponge and you stick it in a pail of water, it doesn't actually hold a lot of water, does it? A little bit of water. But if you soften that thing up, you clean it up, you soak it for a long time, eventually, and now you stick it in that pail, it, it, you know, it takes half the pail of water out. Christians are like that. We're, we're just like that. If we're full of crustiness and dirt and we're dried out, we can't carry a great deal of his presence in our lives. There isn't a great measure of the filling of the Spirit in our lives and we can't accomplish very much because apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Isn't that what he said? And so, the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit is so vital. So vital. I can't impress it on you enough. But we have to meet the conditions. We're responsible for that so that he can fill us, so that we can absorb more of the Spirit that he is so desirous of us to have. I trust that this message from the Lord by his Spirit, through his Word, has encouraged you and motivated you that you want more of his Spirit. Meet the conditions. Meet the conditions and ask for it. Cry aloud for it. And then obey him. And watch what he'll do with your life. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you and praise you. Thank you for your eternal word. Oh, it is powerful. It is just filled 
with, with treasure that tells us how we can live successfully in an eternal perspective for the line of eternity rather than just for the dot of the present. God, place a desire for us to have more of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.